be in Luke 18. Do verses 1 through 9. I'll go ahead and read that. It says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord says, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So it's a smaller section, and it's actually quite a simple parable. It's pretty easy to understand. There's a judge who's unrighteous for some reason. He's a bad judge, and this widow needs help, and he won't help her. But eventually she wears him down, and then he ends up, he says, fine, I'll help you. And uh, we'll look at the whole irony of the whole situation. But notice in 18.1, it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always pray, not lose heart. Jesus isn't saying that. Luke is saying that, which is more helpful to have a red-letter Bible when Jesus says stuff. Because if you take that out, he ends the section from last time and immediately starts telling the parable. He ends up telling them where the corpse, or really where the corpse is there, the eagles will gather. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor man. And based off of my understanding of that previous text, I wonder what certain certain city he's talking about, where someone needs certain help and they're waiting for God to redeem them. Now, the good thing about this parable is, although I take that previous part about the destruction of Jerusalem, the good thing about this parable is that it's about anyone who prays and is tempted to lose heart and is temp- and struggling to trust God and is waiting for God to vindicate them. So it's not like, oh, this parable doesn't matter. It's about the destruction of Jerusalem. No, it's about anyone who is praying and struggling to lose heart. So it's an easy parable, and I could really just read it and then tell you, well, Luke tells us that this is what it's about, and so there's not much that I can add to it. Luke kind of determines what I have to preach, thankfully. Uh, But there's a reason that Luke came to that conclusion. Luke doesn't do this often. He does it here, and then he does it in the very next parable with the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. Uh, He says that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He doesn't do that often, but in these two parables, he starts both parables telling you exactly what the parable is about. Like, these are so important to get that he just ruins it for you, which is very not Jewish, by the way. And that's how you know Luke is very Greek, to, to just spoil the ending right from the start. Like, by the way, here's what the parable is about. But the audience that Jesus is telling it to, they don't know it's about that. So you can feel the anticipation of them hearing, you know, is this widow going to be vindicated? Will this judge actually care for her? Meanwhile, if you skip, scoop, uh, sorry, skip Luke's words, you know that that is the case. So I want you to feel that anticipation as well, even though Luke kind of spoils it for us. So we're introduced to this character. There's a man in a certain city who is a judge and he neither fears God nor respects man, which is like, it's supposed to be funny. And like I talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus could make you laugh in one sentence and in the next few moments have you crying. It's it's so masterfully the way he teaches it. But he says there was a judge who was bad at being a judge. There's a judge with poor judgment, which is like an engineer who is bad at math. You're supposed to think, how on earth did this man become judge? I don't know how they chose judges in those days, but the way that the judges' system worked was that the, they, the judges would go on circuits between the towns. And so you may be waiting months until a judge comes back into town. They did not have the right to a quick and speedy trial like we do. So the judge may be in College Station one month, and then in Hearn the next, and then Bryan, and then San Antonio and Austin, and then you have to wait six months till he comes back to Hearn. 
So she, and you get the hint that she was continually asking him and he was continually rejecting her. So this could have been for weeks or months or years. So whenever he would come back around on his judge circuit, he'd hear all the cases. And evidently there were bigger cases in that town probably. And he didn't find that this one was really all that important. So he ignored her plea for help. She wants justice against her adversary. We're not given much information on what she's talking about, which isn't really the point of it at all. Uh, One important note is that this isn't about end time judgment. That was a common interpretation really early in the church history, but it really isn't that big of an interpretation now. The reason is it doesn't make sense if it's about end time judgment because you can't just plead with God enough and eventually go, fine, I'll let you into heaven. That's how this works. If you just ask hard enough, then fine, I'll, I'll, I'll hear your case. And either way, he's not judging her. He's judging this faceless adversary off page who's not there. This, this person who's probably taking advantage of her financially, and she's now a widow and poor and needs help. So he's not judging her. He's ju- giving her judgment. That's an important to note about what the judge system was in the biblical time, both from all the way to beginning to end. I think our idea of judges is similar, although we kind of think of judges as the, the guy who makes the verdict to go and lock you up, although that may be part of it. Most judges aren't doing that, and most of what judges are doing most of the time is helping vindicate people. When someone feels hurt or they need the law to back them up, you go to the judge, and the judge will um, order financial compensation in some way. They vindicate you. They help you. It's not always locking up bad guys, although that's usually what makes it on the news because those are way more exciting than, oh, someone was granted $25,000 in damages. Usually not as exciting, but that really is what a judge is usually doing in the Bible and even now, helping those who have been hurt in some way. Vindicating those who need help and actually deciding whether or not you've been hurt or whether you deserve what happened. So she's asking for judgment, not that this guy would go to prison or that he'd go to hell. It's not about end time judgment. It's about you should back me up as a judge. You need to help me. For example, um, Sarai at that time in Genesis 13, she's uh, she's hurt by what she told Abraham to do with Hagar. It's a really confusing story. She told Abraham, go have a child with Hagar. And when he did, she got mad at him. Strange story. Um, But she's mad at him, says, well, may God judge between me and you. Meaning not may God send you to hell for what you did. She means may God decide whether you're right or I'm right. And we'll see in the future whether God will bring judgment. All throughout the scriptures, God is the judge over Israel, over the nations, not only decisively in the end, although that's clear and true, it's present judgment. God will vindicate Israel if they're obedient and these bigger nations come to attack him. He will be judged over them and vindicate them and help them. So like I said, this unjust judge is supposed to be funny. It's specifically, I think he's specifically going against the quote from 2 Chronicles 19. In 2 Chronicles 19... Uh, we're given the institution of the judges the first time. Uh, Jehoshaphat institutes the judges in the land in uh, chapter 19, verse 5. He appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality in taking bribes. So Jehoshaphat specifically tells the judges, you must fear the Lord. So Jesus tells a parable about a judge who didn't fear the Lord. And ironically, he doesn't fear the Lord and he doesn't respect man. It doesn't say he didn't fear the Lord or man. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it's actually when God is saying what the judges should be like. He said, you shouldn't fear man. He's saying you should fear the Lord 
and not fear man. So Jesus can't say you should fear, he didn't fear the Lord or man because he would be doing the right thing. So he has the judge do the exact opposite of what Jehoshaphat and God said a judge should be. You should fear God and uh, respect man. And this guy neither fears God nor respects man. It's also a funny, <laughs> because I think it's supposed to be the direct opposite of Jesus' interpretation of the law. Remember, the, the lens through which Jesus says we should look at the whole Bible, but specifically the law is, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this guy doesn't love the Lord and doesn't care about his neighbor. He's specifically a judge who rejects Jesus' interpretation of the law and does the exact opposite. Um, this parable is setting up an image. As soon as you hear there was a judge, you should be thinking in the back of your head, this is going to tell me something about God. Because the, one of the most common images for God in the scriptures is judge. So when he starts talking about this unrighteous judge, it just starts setting up in our head these, these ideas of what this is going to tell us about God who is a righteous judge. Ironically, this judge also won't give vindication to a widow. Now, a widow in their time wasn't the exact same as a widow now. Neither was an orphan then. A widow or an orphan, to the, in the biblical sense, from start to finish, a widow is someone who just doesn't have anyone to provide for her. Um, if their husband died or left or went to war or was just not there anymore, um, that was considered a widow. They had no one to provide for them in their patriarchal system. And an orphan was just fatherless. An orphan was not father and motherless, just fatherless, because that orphan may have a, a mother, but they have no one to provide for them. So a widow was just someone without a provider. And ironically, in Scripture, God himself specifically, specifically talks about how he is a God who gives judgment to widows and orphans. So you really see the foil that's going on with this unrighteous judge. He is the exact opposite of what God is like. In Exodus 22, one of the, a very powerful scripture, I think, that I wish the world would see. If they see God as an angry God, if you would just show them this scripture, I think it would be so powerful in Exodus 22, 24. God is teaching them about sojourners and about foreigners and about widows and orphans. Uh, and he says, oops, sorry, lost my place. Oh my goodness, I went to the complete wrong book. <laughs> so he says, uh, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children will become orphans. So God is speaking to the men of Israel saying, if you oppress the widow and orphans, I will make your wives widows and I will make your children orphans, meaning I'll kill you. He literally threatens to kill them if they oppress the widow and the orphans. So now you get this unjust judge who is oppressing the widow. So this widow is helpless and her only tool against her adversary is her persistence. And ironically, in the story, she has this faceless off-page adversary. But what happens is the very person who can't help her, the only person who can help her, ends up being her opponent as well. She goes to the judge for help and for vindication. And the one person who's supposed to help her ends up being against her as well. So her only tool is her persistence against this judge who she continually comes to. And finally, the judge concedes. He says, fine. I will give her justice so that she doesn't beat me down, is what my translation says in verse 5, so that she will not beat me down. Now, that is an idiom. What it literally means is so that she will not punch me in the face. That's literally what it means. So that she will not um, punch me below my eye is what it is literally translated. Now, I've heard this taken literally. I doubt that this widow would have physically attacked a judge. It's probably the one person you don't want to physically attack is a judge. But it's an idiom. And again, idioms are notoriously hard to translate. 
I think it's similar to, well, if I don't vindicate this widow, then I'm going to have a black eye on my reputation. doesn't mean she's going to hit him with her purse. What it means is everyone's going to know me as the widow hater. So I got to do something so that I'm not the bad guy, even though he is the bad guy. And notice he finally acts in the right way, but it's for complete wrong reasons. It's not that she continually was persistent in coming to him and finally goes, you know what, you're right. I should have been doing this all along. I'm so sorry. Here, I'll help you. No, he goes, I just don't want to look like the widow hater, bad guy. So I'll finally, I'll do what I need to do. And in verse four, he says, "Um, I'll give her justice, which is really ironic and telling. He knew what justice was the whole time. He knew what was right to do. He just didn't feel like doing it. There are probably other cases that he saw more important than this one. Other cases that would give him a better reputation than this one. The big case that everyone wants to see what the verdict is instead of just, oh, him helping a faceless widow that no one really cares about. So he knows what justice is the whole time. He just doesn't really care to do that. Again, it's painting this portrait of what God is not like. So. Like I said, it's a simple parable. And the way that this parable works, it's called Calva Omer. It's an Aramaic term I've used before, and Jesus uses it frequently. It means light to heavy or lesser to greater. It's pretty simple, and we do it today even. It just means if we can agree on this small thing, then how much more is this great thing true? If we can agree that God cares about the birds of the air, then you've surely got to agree that God cares about you. You're more important than birds. And it's like this logical trap where if you can say, well, there's no way you can agree on this small thing and then disagree with me on this big thing. Uh, And so that's what Jesus is doing is saying, can't we agree that even this persistent widow can beat this judge down and he finally listens to her? How much more will God listen to you who's eager to listen to his hurting children who are who cry out to him day and night? And the climax of the parable is a question. I love that Jesus does that. That's very Eastern. It it climaxes in a question. It gives you something to think about. Paul does this all the time. It's a rhetorical yes. Paul sometimes does it with a rhetorical no. But he says, won't God hear his elect who cry out to him day and night? And you're thinking, well, of course he will. So that's exactly the way Jesus is setting this up. If this unrighteous judge who's unwilling to hear even the most marginalized in their culture, if even he will finally do what's right for this widow, why would God not help you who he loves? God is a righteous judge. He's not like this judge. And that's where this parable can kind of go off the tracks a little bit is that it gets taken as, you know, well, if you want God to listen to you, you've got to really be persistent. You've got to stay up day and night begging for him to do something. But that's exactly what Jesus isn't saying. He's saying, why would you pray to God like he's a reluctant judge when you know that he is a righteous judge? So why do you pray, him, pray to him like he's an unrighteous judge when you know he's not? So pray to him like he is a righteous judge, like he's eager to help quickly, not like he's reluctant. But unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't feel very quick. And that's where talking about prayer gets really hard. And I will say talking and thinking and teaching about prayer is very hard. Prayer is one of those things you learn about it as you do it more and more. So it's like the the oldest, most wise person should get up and talk about it who's prayed the most because they learn the most about it because it's something you learn as you do it. And of course, there's so much ink that's been spilled and words that have been spoken about what happens in prayer, what doesn't happen in prayer, what's theologically going on in prayer. How can an all-knowing God answer our prayers? I don't know. (laughs) And I don't think that's the point because if you understood all the inner workings of how prayer works, prayer is kind of pointless because then that would make you God. (laughs) If you could just understand everything that goes on behind behind the scenes, everything that goes unseen, then you wouldn't really need to pray in the first place because in that scenario, you would be God. So sometimes things don't happen quickly. And as cliche, cliche as it sounds, I will say, Um, everything is better on God's timing. And I know that's like something you'd put on a coffee cup or something, but I think the saying is true. It's better when it is God's timing. 
The problem is when we don't know the timing because we're not God. It's better to get a yes from God, but a yes, but a, a wait. It's, it's better when God says yes, but just wait. Because if we were to receive something not in God's timing, then that would be bad because God knows what is best for us. Therefore, he knows when we best need it. I think the hardest part about prayer is not being God. And the hardest part about prayer is accepting that you're not God. And I know that no one would functionally say like, well, well, I don't actually think I'm God. I know you don't, and neither did Adam and Eve. But the point is when you act as if you are God, you're functionally saying, I think I'm God. Even the absence of prayer altogether, I think is such a prideful thing that I deal with as well. The absence of prayer altogether is this heinous crime against God saying, I really don't need you today because I'm God. (laughs) I've got today under my wing. I've got today in control. I'll come back to you when I need you because as far as today goes, I'm in control. I don't need you. And I love that uh, the Lord's prayer is kind of the opposite of that. Give us our daily bread. It's waking up and saying and saying, I need you today. It's waking up and confessing that I don't have today under control. I don't know what's going to happen today. I need you to provide daily bread. I need you to forgive us of our debts. I need you to protect us from the evil one. We need you. It's a, it's a waking up and immediately um, getting rid of this, any sense of self-reliance. So that's what prayer is all about, is learning to not be God. So I think that's the hardest part is because we wake up and we want to be in control. And I would say that the power of prayer is in the process of prayer itself. So for all the mysteries that prayer has, you know, how can a, a God outside of time answer questions within time? You know, that, that is confusing. I mean, how can you pray for something and then it comes and then you get a yes, God answers your prayer. But the yes is something that would have had to been formed months back. Right. It's something that would have had to come to form months ago, but it comes to fruition right after you pray for it. It's like God put it in your heart to even pray for that thing that it was It's even thinking about it hurts my brain because I don't need to know how everything worked. Thankfully, that's God's job. All we need to know is to not try to be God and prayer shapes us because we get to remind our flesh every day. We are not in control and we aren't God. Um, and like I said, power, the power of prayer is in the process. As you pray, I've heard this a thousand times, and I think it's true. As you pray, prayer shapes you. It's not always a petition or a request. A lot of times it's just the process of praying, that refusal of self, that refusal of control, that refusal of trying to be God shapes you. If you, if you wake up every day for five years reminding yourself you're not God, you're not in control, that will shape you. Whether or not God says yes, no, or maybe, it will shape you. And I think God always does say yes, no, or maybe. Sometimes he says no, but he still provides for you everything you need when he says no. He didn't say just no, go away, like the judge does to the widow. Sometimes he just says yes, and those, praise God for those moments. Sometimes he says yes, but wait, because you're asking for the right thing, and I'm going to give you that thing. But if I give it to you now, then it'd be the wrong thing. Sometimes he says, we'll see. Sometimes it's just a matter of waiting because we're not outside of time like God is. If you've been praying for a long time like this widow who's praying for God to vindicate her, understand that, like Peter says, a thousand years to God is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. He will answer your prayer and he's heard your prayer and he's not giving up on you or abandoning you. I think the main point of both this parable and elsewhere where Jesus speaks of praying, I think the punch of both of those, especially in Luke, the punch of them is understanding what God is like. 
The point of this prayer isn't necessarily persistence, although it's often been taken that way. I think the punch of the parable is knowing what God is like. Hence him setting up this scenario. You know that God's not like this unrighteous judge. So understand what God is like and then go along with your prayers. But if you're praying to this God who's unruly and and cold hearted and doesn't want to hear your prayers and you're praying to a God that doesn't exist. So you may as well not be praying at all. There's no point of praying to a God that you don't even know if he exists or not. not. There's no point of praying to a God who you think is cold hearted and angry because God's not like that. So I think that one of the biggest barriers, aside from thinking that we're God in some sense, the biggest barrier to prayer is understanding what God is like. The main barrier isn't the words we use or the main barrier isn't even our frequency we'll look at. But I think the main barrier uh, is understanding what God is like. Remember the, the parable of the, the friend who his friend comes to him at midnight, knocking on his door, and he's like, fine, fine, I'll give you bread for your neighbors. And the point is, he's a very reluctant friend to help, and God's not saying you should pound on the door and wake God up. That's what you've got to do in order to get him to hear your case. No, he's saying, I'm not like that friend. <laughs> if you knock on my door at midnight, I'll open the door. I'm not going to be reluctant to help you. You have to understand what God is like better. So is this parable about frequency, persistence, or continuity, or all three, or none of them? What is this parable about? I think often the the widow's persistence is what gets bolstered and glorified. And there is something in Scripture about being persistent and continual in prayer. I will say that. I don't want you to walk away from the sermon and say, well, the preacher told us to pray less. Of course, I don't want you to think that. There is something Paul says in Romans 12 about being constant in prayer. And that that word really has the emphasis of continual, meaning repetitive, being in repetition, meaning praying at the same time every day, trying to constantly be in prayer. It wasn't supposed to be a guilt trip if you're not praying eight hours a day. And Paul starts his epistles and his letters saying, um, you know, I, I've remembered you in my prayers constantly. Of course, constant prayer is a good thing. But the glory of this parable isn't her persistence, but the fact that God isn't like that judge. Her persistence can get glorified, but Jesus himself is the one who taught that there's a special place in prayer for brevity, for being succinct. Not using many words. Literally, he says, don't go on and on and with many words like the pagans do. They think they'll be heard because they go on and on with many words. He's saying, hey, just be brief. <laughs> just say what you need. You're not going to sway God's opinion because you go on praying for an hour and a half. The danger with that is if, if we see this as, oh, well, this means God really wants us to be so persistent like the widow is. The, the point, though, is the widow had to be that persistent because there was a reluctant judge who didn't want to help. But God is saying, I'm not like that. So while there is a place for continual prayer... I think the emphasis is be careful lest you put your hope and faith in your ability to be persistent. If you go in prayer and saying, I've been so persistent, God's got to answer me now, then your persistence was in vain because it's a persistence, persistence saying, wow, look how good at prayer I've been. Not a succinct brevity that Jesus says you should be brief at times and don't go on and on. It's not the amount of time you spend in prayer. It's understanding the God who you pray to. So put your hope in the understanding that God is a righteous judge who will respond and he's not reluctant to help. So I'll end with this. I think this is really cool. I think and I, this is why I really wanted to do the Pharisee and the tax collector right after, but rest assured I won't. I'll do that next time. I wanted to add that to the end. One, because I think that story and this story are connected. The Pharisee and the tax collector, and uh, he, they pray in the temple. One good prayer, one bad prayer. Again, they're connected. There's, a, prayer, there's a, a, a parable about the widow praying and then a story in the temple about two people learning how to pray and one gives a bad prayer. And Jesus says, now this tax collector, he went home 
vindicated. He went home justified. The same exact word used for the widow who finally was vindicated, who was justified. He's saying the same thing, two different parables and how to pray. So I spoil next week, but hopefully by that time you'll forget. But the point is, um, there's also a different story. The, the book of Luke starts in chapter 2, verse 36 to 39. Anna, the prophetess, a widow. The Greek is hard. She was either a widow for 84 years or she was married, her husband died, and then she was a widow up until she was 84 years old. Probably that one, because um, elsewhere she'd be like over 100 years old, but that is possible. There were people who lived that long. So, but the point is, she's in the temple constantly, it says, praying for the vindication of Israel, praying for the redemption of Israel, and she's in the temple. That's why I wanted to do the Pharisee and the tax collector, because they're in the temple. But for this story, she's a widow who's standing before God and she's humbly praying day and night. The same word, same phrase used for this widow who prayed day and night, who came to the judge, hoping that God would vindicate her. And the same phrase when Jesus says, won't God answer his people who pray day and night? It's the same phrase. I think Luke is intentionally having hooks back into that story in chapter two. But finally, God answers her. She used her widowhood to be um, faithful to God, to pray and to fast in the temple day and night. And finally, she's very old, at least 84. We know that. And finally, she sees baby Jesus held by Simon, who was also faithful in praying. (laughs) But she sees baby Jesus. And finally, she gets to be the first prophet who announces that the Messiah is here. Not even John the Baptist. Now, in a sense, he's the first major prophet prophesied in Malachi, of course, but the first person, the first prophetess to announce that the Messiah was here to redeem Jerusalem is Anna, the widow who was faithful in prayer day and night and God did not give up on her. And she had to wait 84 years to get the answer to her prayer. And it wasn't because she was persistent. It was because God is faithful. So I want you to remember that God loves to bless the marginalized and the hurting. If you've been praying for a long time and you feel like God is ignoring you, one, that means prayer is working. If you feel like God is ignoring you, that means prayer is working because he's saying, yes, but you have to wait. And in this meantime, this waiting period will shape you. It'll shape your mind. It'll shape your heart. It'll make you give up control because if you walk away from prayer and feel like you need to take control, you need to pray a little bit more. So if you have been praying for a long time, whether it's small or large, and you feel like God has abandoned you, rest assured he hasn't. And in that waiting period, the process of prayer is actually working in that. Also, I think the point of this parable, what is God like? Understanding the barrier to prayer is us understanding what God is like. That's why I love the Psalms. Like half the Psalms are prayers, but half of them are also just telling God what he already knows and he loves it. God, you are righteous. You're steadfast. You vindicate your people. You love your people. You love showing us honor. You love manifesting yourself in front of us. You love us. <laughs> but it's a prayer. It's reminding God who he is. Even Moses, when he's interceding for Israel, in a sense, it's a prayer. It's a face-to-face prayer. So it's a little bit, his knees are shaking probably a little bit more. But it's a face-to-face prayer. And he goes, God, I know what you're like. You promised to redeem these people. So don't you abandon them in the wilderness. It's a very bold prayer. But he's reminding God what he is like. You almost get the sense that God is like, finally, now you're understanding what I'm like. Now your prayer will make sense. So as you pray, as you pray remember for, first and foremost who God is and what he's like. He's not a reluctant friend or a reluctant judge. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for this text. And thank you so much for Jesus' ability to teach us in the flesh, God. And um, thank you for Luke being faithful and, and putting it together, God. I pray that this sermon would make sense to us, God, and that we would be um, excited to pray to you, your your. Um, to be honored, God, and you're righteous, and you love helping your people who are hurting. Um, sometimes you say yes, sometimes you say wait, sometimes you say, um, you know, no. <laughs> but I pray that in those times, yes, no, or wait, God, that you would provide us exactly what we need, God. 
Please be quick to help us, God, or remind us that you're always there with us, God. Just until we pray. Amen.